When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal. But it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. We've got a very terrific show ready for you tonight. We'll be talking with Tui Snyder. Tui's an author, a speaker, and a photographer, and we'll talk about the often forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols. You know, you walk through a cemetery and you look at the headstones, and sometimes there are symbols there that many you recognize, I'm sure, but some you don't. They have meanings. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about stories from her new book called Paranormal Texas. That'll be coming up in just a little bit on the program. Just looking ahead quickly, tomorrow night we've got Alex Bose with us. Alex is the author of Psychedelic Apes and also curator of the Museum of Hoaxes.com. And Alex will present bizarre but plausible alternative theories. And then uh, um, more programs coming up for you. Ming Chi, author of the book Angels of Rainbow Bridge, Life After Transition. This will help with people who are suffering from the loss of a pet. And also, Frank J. Bennett will be on the program soon. Uh, Frank is an author and a Bible teacher, and he'll discuss Encounter with the Aberdeen Wild Man. That's a book he's written, plus his biblical perspective on the paranormal. So a lot of great stuff coming up on the show here on Beyond Reality Radio. Um, I did want to mention that uh, some pretty, I guess, heavy things in the news here. Of course, I'm sure you've heard that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced a formal impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump today, Tuesday, focusing on whether Trump abused his presidential powers and sought help from a foreign government to undermine possible Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden during a phone conversation. The effort was led by a group of Democrats from political swing districts, and Trump since has authorized the release of the transcript of the call and says, quote, you'll see it was a very friendly and totally appropriate call. We'll see, but uh, let's bring in um, political expert, our good friend Scotty Roberts, co-host of the political podcast known as The Situation Room. Scotty, um, impeachment, what's this all about? Uh, how you doing, Jim? Well, first of all, the first thing I have to say is in hearing this announcement today, first, it's no surprise, but I think it's very interesting that, whoa, now we've got him. There's been three years of investigations of trying to delegitimize the presidency of Donald Trump. And uh, after the Mueller report, the relaunching, the riding the dead horse, trying to find a way to make something stick so they can start impeachment proceedings. And now this new news of this supposed whistleblower, who we find actually wasn't firsthand to the call that was made, uh, he had secondhand information. And uh, this is brought up, what, three days ago? And all of a sudden, now it's, bam, we're into impeachment. We've got him now. I think the first thing to notice about this, and you can hear I have some sarcasm in my voice, a little bit of uh, uh, incredulity, is that after all the money that's been spent to try to find something to pin on President Trump, they now have it in the last three days, and they've moved all their efforts into this one thing now. To say, now we've got them, and now we're going to go for the impeachment. And I thought it was, there's something I found about Donald Trump, whether you like him or not, he is a master game player when it comes to politics. And uh, I think he deliberately waited, and as soon as they made that announcement, he pulled the rug right out from under him and said, well, hey, uh, we're just going to, I just signed a, an order to release the transcript fully unredacted, and you'll see it's just fine. There was nothing there. You know, and, 
when, yeah. when we talk about impeachment, I mean, the, the Constitution is rather clear as to what uh, qualifies uh, for impeachable inf- offenses. Uh, you know, high yeah. crimes and misdemeanors is often thrown about. Um, you know, I haven't I don't have a lot, any inside information, so I don't really know. And when and when these uh, transcripts are released tomorrow, I suppose we'll have a lot more information. However, it seems to me like right now we're talking about a little tra- uh, tabloid uh, uh, rumor mill going on. And um, already we have what's being called impeachment inquiry. Yes. And, you know, I'm seeing that right now. And I've, I've been hearing this stuff about Joe Biden and his son in Ukraine for years. Nothing has ever been looked to on that. And now Joe Biden himself came out and made a statement today uh, that was totally condemning the president on this. And yet uh, he's got his own case that nobody's looking into. I look at uh, things like uh, um, uh, it was uh, McCarthy who is the uh, the House Minority Leader, and he really hammered Pelosi for coming out and doing this. He said Pelosi happens to be the Speaker of the House, but she doesn't speak for all of America when it comes to this issue. And he even brought up, he said, the election's over. I realize 2016 didn't turn out the way Pelosi and other Democrats wanted it, but it's time to put the public before politics. And then uh, there was also... Um, uh, who was it in, in the Senate? Uh, I think it was Kennedy in the Senate. He said, uh, um, no, he's, a, he's a, a Senator John Kennedy, uh, a Republican from Louisiana, said, a member, uh, uh, my response to them is to go hard or go home. He said, if you want to impeach the president, stop talking. Do it. Do it. Go to Amazon, buy a spine, and do it, and let's get after it. And I think the public will feel like it's more harassment, he added. And then there was uh, somebody else from the, the Senate today, and I'm just looking for I made this note. He said, you know, you go right ahead and do this, but uh, it's got to go to from the House, which is going to vote for impeachment no matter what, along party lines. And they have a majority in the House. But it's going to go to the Senate, where the Senate Republicans have a majority, and they're going to quash it. So it's going to go nowhere. Um, it's not going to be, there's going to be no impeachment and there isn't grounds for impeachment. Well, that was my next question. Uh, you can't, you can't impeach yeah. a president cause you don't like him, or you can't impeach a president because he just says dumb things on Twitter. I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't you know, seem to rise to the can, occasion. Frankly, you can impeach a president for anything you want. If you've got the votes, it's whether or not it meets the constitutional criteria. And you mentioned the crimes and misdemeanors, there's corruption, there's all of this. What they've been going on up until the last three days is trying to rehash all the stuff about collusion, Russian collusion, all of this, and try to make a case. And now they're trying to use this phone call as a case that this whistleblower brought out, which, uh, as Trump has said, and I've seen it happen over and over and over again, is that um, I'm sounding very partisan here, but I'm sick and tired of this stuff. So my anger, my my dander gets up a little bit about all of this. You don't put the country through an impeachment for spurious charges. And uh, this is exactly what they've been trying to do for three years. And now they think they've got something to move on. And it's going to be a big nothing burger. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and it's going to die. Well, um, I guess we'll see both sides of this uh, coming out over the next few days. So it'll be interesting to watch. Scotty, thank you for coming on and commenting. When and where and how can people uh, catch the Situation Room? Oh, the Situation Room, uh, it's actually playing right now. Uh, it starts at midnight Eastern, 11 o'clock Central, uh, five nights a week, Sunday night through Thursday night, which is technically Monday morning through Thursday morning. So what you're saying is it competes, it competes with me on this show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, had I known Sorry. that. <laughs> no know. worries. No worries. Uh, well, we, we, we pre-recorded today, so it's playing now. That's why I was able to be here. And uh, uh, then my show plays at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, the, the Intrepid Radio Program. You can find me uh, uh, on uh, um, Odyssey One Radio, and you can find me on my YouTube channel. All right. Thanks so much, Scotty. Always great to have you on the program. Look forward to bringing you back again. Uh, Another uh, item in the news I wanted to touch on, the IRS is testing a new system that uses behavioral 
analytics to determine authentication of online users of the agency's resources. And the reason this is unusual is that um, they've hired a company to mine data such as whether a person is right-handed or left-handed, how much finger pressure they use on a smartphone uh, screen, and other actions that they say combined are unique to each user. And they're going to start using those data to determine whether or not people logging into their accounts are actually the people they say they are. Sounds like another uh, tool of uh, invasion of privacy that we've these uh, this technology seems to continue to demonstrate for us but we'll keep an eye on that as well all right we're going to go to break when we come back tui snyder is our guest tonight we're going to be talking about a couple of her books including understanding cemetery symbols and paranormal texas that's all ahead right here on beyond reality radio look out rochester scaricon is coming for you the northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the rochester riverside hotel october 18th through the 20th scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities panel discussions film screenings great vendors and amazing parties it's a weekend of fun from start to finish and it's family friendly for more information visit scaricon.com and check us out on facebook use the promo code brr at checkout to save 20 percent on your admission. That's Scaracon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. We're going to be talking about a couple of different things with our guest, Tui Schneider, tonight. We're going to be talking about cemetery symbols. Her new book is called Understanding Cemetery Symbols and also Paranormal Texas. Texas is a very big state with a lot of very strange things that have been reported. We'll be getting into all of that with Tui. Um, Tui is an author a speaker, and a photographer. Tui, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here tonight. Well, hey, thanks so much for having me. And, <laughs> and what a lively chat room. I was in there really, everyone's so friendly. Yeah, the chat room is is pretty friendly, pretty funny, and pretty aggressive and active. So we, we like having our chatters <laughs> doing all those things. And I'm glad to see you in there as well. And by the way, if, uh, you're looking, if you're listening and looking for the chat room, it's part of our YouTube stream. You just go to uh, YouTube and search for JV Johnson or Beyond Reality Radio, and you'll find it either way. So, Tui, tell us a little bit about your interest in the paranormal. When did all this start? Oh, well, it started when I was a little kid. And I'm the youngest of three kids, but by quite a, a margin, because my sister and brother are seven and ten years older than me. And so when strange things started happening in a new house that we'd moved into, uh, and I started hearing strange things, I knew how it looked to them because I was the youngest. And so that is when my interest in the paranormal began. And that's when I, you know, I first told them what was happening, and I realized they weren't really taking me seriously. And even I knew, like, okay, I'm ten, I kind of know how this looks. So I, I went to the library, and I started reading everything I could about it, and I really haven't stopped since. So you were seeing or experiencing things as a child that the rest of your family wasn't? Yes, except only in the last few years, I found out that my dad, it was, it was we would hear things in this house. What would happen to me is it might be, and this would happen at like random times, and maybe it could be three in the afternoon. It would just happen when I was alone in the house. I might be practicing piano or reading a book, and, you know, the family had gone to the store. And suddenly, I would hear what sounded like a big ruckus, like someone jumping up and down on the bed in the guest bedroom. And, you know, when you're a kid, you know what it sounds like to jump on a bed, because, <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to do it. Right. And the first few times it happened, I thought there was an intruder, especially the very first time. And then, after a while, I realized... Something else, because you would go in there after hearing this noise, and the bed, the sheets were never messed up. And so that would drive me nuts. Um, and so, you know, it, I knew how it looked to the family. They <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that's really what got my, my interest in it. But I recently found out that my dad would occasionally hear things at night. Like when my sister was out on a date, he said that about a half hour before she got home, there, he would hear knocking at the back door, and he'd go down thinking that she'd lost her keys, and he'd no one would be there. And he, then he, he, when he was downstairs, he would hear knocking at upstairs. So we'd go upstairs, and there would be nothing. So I'm like, wow, you could have told me this when I was a little kid, maybe. But then again, maybe I would have made me such a voracious reader. 
You know, um, your story is not uncommon in the sense that uh, often it's the children of a family or a household that tend to recognize this experience or this phenomena as it's happening. And often the adults or the older uh, siblings won't. And we we kind of attribute to that, that to the fact that um, most folks, as they get older, they kind of tune this stuff out or kind of tell themselves it doesn't exist. So therefore, they don't pay attention to it. Have, did you experience that? Definitely. And I, and it was funny because, you know, even as a kid, like I said, I knew how it looked. I knew that, yeah, it, they're just going to think it's my imagination. And, and sure enough, they did. But it made me more respectful because years later, when my stepdaughter was hearing some things, uh, and it was a different house, by the way, um, she was hearing, we lived by the water, and she said she would hear drumming sometimes uh, on the next cove over on the beach. And so I treated her the way I would have liked to have been treated. Like, I wasn't condescending at all. I was just like, okay, honey, tell me about it. And inside, I was thinking that she must be hearing the sound of, like, boat hulls slapping on the water. But but I never made fun of her. I just, okay, tell me what you hear. And she would say that, okay, she'd be down at the beach. She'd hear what sounded like drums, just a steady drumming sound. And then if she walked to see who was there... We lived on a little island with seven people, so there was nobody there. So if you, she went around to the next cove. As soon as she got to the path that you could walk up the hill, she said it would instantly stop. So I took her very seriously. And what is so funny is that I had a, a friend visit me, a childhood friend, who happened to be the only other person who heard that noise in my house. And while she was visiting, we were down at the beach, and all of a sudden, we both heard drumming, and it was not boat, a boat hole slapping the water, like, you know, what that sounds like as an adult. And sure enough, we, you know, I didn't think of my daughter right away. I really thought someone's over there playing the drums, not like a drum, drum set. It sounded more like Native American drumming. Right. And we ran around the corner, uh, got right to the edge where we were going to walk up the little pathway, and it stopped. And then I suddenly remembered what my stepdaughter had been saying all those, you know, months. And I suddenly realized, wow, we're experiencing it, too. And were you ever able, able to come up with an explanation, or paranormal or otherwise? No. And we did try to recreate it. Uh, we did try to debunk it. But, you know, it, I mean, I, I like to think maybe it was some sort of Native American echo, because we found out that our... Um, our island that we lived on was a specific island that the Native Americans there would um, visit specifically for the cedars to make their canoes. So it was kind of sacred to them, and that was a special use. So it was kind of neat. I yeah. don't know. I really don't know what it was, but <laughs> I, I thought it was cool that I got to experience it, too. <laughs> um, Tui, any, anything since then, since your childhood, that kind of reinforced this idea or this curiosity for paranormal uh, phenomena? Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Just random things throughout my life that have been strange, outside of the box. Um, I you know, had a, a UFO sighting, um, which in the scheme of UFO sightings was pretty mild, but still, it was strange. And I've definitely had some other experiences. Also, while I was researching the book Paranormal Texas, I went on a lot of official paranormal investigations, so it was kind of interesting to see um, the things that happened then and the experiences I had there. Yeah, you know, um, I've spent a lot of time in dark rooms doing what would be con <laughs> what would be called ghost hunting or paranormal investigating, and I'm uh, sad to say I've never had any uh, what I would consider to be striking experiences. I've had a few experiences, but nothing that I would walk away saying, "Wow, that was the you know was the holy grail of paranormal experiences." I haven't had that luck, nor have I had a UFO encounter, nor have I had a big oh, Bigfoot encounter. And these are all things that I talk about every night on this program. <laughs> and I am so hungry to have one of those experiences, uh, and they just seem to elude me. Oh, goodness. I know a couple places I think you should go, and maybe you would have an experience. Although, I do begin to wonder if there are some people who are kind of like a a grounding rod, and it just, like, do you, when you are on an investigation, do you just sort of calm everything down? I, I don't know. Maybe some people, like my husband, he 
he um, comes with me to everything. I mean, he's a, used to be a chemistry teacher, and he is a mad scientist. He actually has a laboratory with all the laboratory equipment you can imagine. You know, you watch Young Frankenstein. Basically, that's what it looks like. So he's very uh, left-brained and very, you know, this everything must have a reason. And we actually call him Archie Debunker. Like, he will come <laughs> along. You know how you know how every paranormal team will say, like, oh, and this is our skeptic. But then five minutes in, the skeptic's going, whoa, I got scratched. I'm running out of the room. And, and you're yeah. thinking, you're the skeptic? you know. But when my husband comes on a paranormal investigation, uh, he can be really handy because he can point out the things that maybe are tricking us. And he knows a lot about, like, the wiring and how plumbing and, and things that can go bump in the night that aren't necessarily paranormal. So that's really helpful. And the funny thing is, though, he does say, I mean, he, I've asked him when we'll go, because he'll, he'll say things, kind of get a little smart-ass. He'll be like, well, I know exactly how many ghosts we'll see tonight. Zero. You know, <laughs> but then he still wants to go with me. And and then, you know, I'll have a crazy experience or something will happen. Um, gosh, like, I, I would love to take you to Mineral Wells, Texas. I actually saw a glowing ball of light just moving across, you know, no one was there to see it with me, which really kind of is a bummer. So I would like to go back. And of course, my camera wasn't, you know, I didn't snap a picture at the time. But I did uh, have a really interesting, I think you should go to the Old Park Hotel. Um, I had a, a weird doppelganger encounter there. And I don't know what you think about doppelgangers at all. Well, I mean, I, I've, uh, you know, we've had people on the program before that have had that experience. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there's something to it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the phenomena mm-hmm. is, per se, but um, there's certainly enough stories to give it some credibility. Well, I have to admit, I really didn't give any credence to doppelgangers. And so this was, you know, a good experience for me to, to eat crow and <laughs> because it ended up being my doppelganger that we encountered. And I just thought that... A hundred years ago, it was easy to just think, boy, that person looked just like Jim who walked in the room. You know, I just thought we didn't, it was just a little bit of mistaken identity coupled with some coincidence and maybe everybody having the same mustache back then. You know, I just really didn't think there was much to do with doppelgangers. I didn't think anything of them at all. Although I think I, I heard you talking a little bit. There's some striking ones. Um, there's a guy who looks a lot like Steve Jobs who's been spotted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. Things like that. But anyway, but that. This is what happened at the old park hotel with me. We captured my doppelganger on an EVP, and uh, it was so weird. So I was with a, a team, Bex Ghost Hunters, and they were getting all their equipment set up, and they were, you know, had their command center, and they were taping stuff down and getting it all going. And so I was really just underfoot. I thought, well, I'll just get out of their way. I know I asked if they needed help, and it was more like, you know, just get out of our way for a little while. So I went upstairs, they were downstairs, and I went upstairs and sat in a chair where the owner, the guy who owns the place, had said that, um, you know, this is where he gets a lot of EDPs. And for me, for some reason, that is one of my favorite forms of evidence because you can replay it and replay it, and if you get a nice, clear EVP, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, So I thought, great. Um, So what I was doing was I was just asking a series of questions and then counting to 10 in my head so that whatever makes an EVP could hopefully say something, you know, I would hopefully catch something. So I had just said, I think I said, I just wonder if I have any company up here with me. And then I'm counting to 10. I'm like, one, two, three, in my head. And I hear one of our team members, Greg, he calls up, hey, Tilly, are you singing? I go, no. He goes, well, I just heard a woman singing. She sounds just like you. And I thought, oh, whatever. I didn't give it any more thought the whole rest of the night. Well, later on, we were all, as you mentioned, sitting in a dark room, as you do on these yes, uh, you do. moments. Yes, you do. <laughs> exactly. There you are, sitting in the dark. And we had also eaten some some dubious Mexican food, so everyone was having to, oh, sorry, that was me, kind of thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was one of those nights. But anyway, so we're sitting there, and it was really quiet, and uh, all of a sudden, I hear Greg, and he says, Tilly, where are you at? I go, I'm over here. I was to the right of him, and he goes, that is strange. I just saw you over by this door, doorway, and he goes, same hat, same you know, shirt, everything. It, it looked just like you, but it just walked by. And so we go, and we look. Nobody's in the hallway. It didn't make any sense. Okay, 
So the next day, I get kind of a excited Facebook message from Becky, and she says, "I got a, I got an EVP. I got you. You were singing to me. You know, I got it on tape." And she sends me her tape recording of that same moment when I had been sitting there going, you know, I just wonder if there's any company up here with me. What's so weird is on my tape recorder, all you hear is me talking and then dead silence. But I didn't know that Becky had sat a tape recorder on the table next to me. So when I was up there, there were actually two tape recorders going at the same time. And on her tape recorder, you hear me go, I just wonder if I have any company up here with me. And then you hear me go, do, 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 like this little silly song. Um, Sounds like Walk on the so, Wild Side by Lou Reed. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Oh, yeah, really. Do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah right? I know. It was so weird. And then to top it off, when I told my husband about it, because I just thought he was going to say something a little snide or whatever, and I said, I played it for him, and I go, sounds like me. And he didn't say, yes, it sounds like you, but he went, perhaps it was your counterpart from the multiverse paying us a visit, something like that. Mm-hmm. I thought, whoa, you know, this is weird. Archie DeBunker isn't even going to say something. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if anyone wants to hear that, I do have it on my YouTube channel. So, uh, What's the address of your YouTube channel? Here, I'll put it in chat. Okay, perfect. Um, listen, we're going to go to break. When we come back, I want to start talking about cemetery. Oh, well, let me. Oh, Part- sorry. <laughs> uh, well, then just give it out. Go ahead and give it out. Okay, it's just youtube.com slash e slash Tui Snyder. Pretty basic. Tui, talk to us about cemetery symbols. When did this topic interest you? When did it first get on your radar? Well, I'd always enjoyed historic cemeteries, but when I really got intrigued by what the symbols meant was when I was doing some historic research and you know, when you want to figure out how someone spelled their last name and, and you're reading those old newspapers. They might spell the last name Kelly, you know, E-Y in one, I-E in another, you know. So I figured, hey, I'll go and, and look at the cemetery. I figure what's on the headstone is what I'm going with. If I'm going to be writing it in an article or, or something like that. And I started to notice uh, on the headstones just different symbols, and I, I wondered what they meant. And so I, I really looked. I Every time I'd go to a bookstore and on Amazon, I would look for a book that I could, you know, keep in my purse or in the glove box and that would just be like a field guide and explain what these different symbols meant. And I really couldn't find the book that I wanted. And I was getting such a collection of notes in a little file that I thought, you know, I've done so much research on this. Why don't I just go ahead? And I, I like the topic so much. Why don't I just write a book? So that's kind of how it came about. You know, I've always enjoyed uh, walking in cemeteries for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is they're very peaceful, obviously. And another reason is that they every every cemetery tells many many stories whether it's stories that you get from reading the headstones themselves or from you know collections of family plots uh, there's there's so much to be told and a lot of it is is requires an effort to kind of fill in the blanks yourself but I find them very very fascinating did you have find that same fascination Yes, and I, I do. I love cemeteries for a similar reason. I uh, actually used to play in a cemetery when I was little. There was a historic cemetery in Virginia, and it may have saved my life. I mean, there, a guy tried to kidnap my friend and I, and he was, you know, we were only nine years old, so he could only run so fast. But he, luckily, he couldn't keep up with us because we could zigzag. We had, we played tag and all sorts of games in that cemetery, so we could really run through it. We knew which, you know, what to avoid, and Anyway, he couldn't keep up with us, and we managed to make our escape. So I guess I should say I, I really do <laughs> have a deep uh, enjoyment and appreciation of cemeteries. But like you, I do find them peaceful. And one thing that was a little bit of an epiphany for me is to realize that cemeteries really are for the living. I mean, we obviously yeah. the dead are there, but you know they go on to whatever they go on to. We don't know for sure. But the, the cemetery is there to reassure us. And it's kind of nice, like, even if you go to a public park, people can still be noisy. You kind of know that if you're walking through a cemetery that people might assume that you are in mourning. So people are just going to let you have your quiet. And it can be hard to find quiet time outside. Other, You know, you can find quiet time maybe in a library but or a church. But if you just want to get into nature and, and, and think about the past, I think a cemetery can be a really great way to make that connection. You know, when we talk about symbols, 
on headstones. Obviously, the most um, recognizable ones would probably be the religious symbols. Uh, But what other kinds of symbols will people find on headstones? Oh, yeah. Well, here's one thing. I mean, in in the past, well, nowadays, what I've noticed is people have gotten very literal with what they put on a headstone. So, you know, Grandpa liked tractors, so you just put a tractor on their headstone. But what I really love about the ones from the past is that when they put a symbol on there, you know, aside from the obvious religious ones, they're... um, there, it could be symbolizing different things. So, for instance, a, a symbol that I really like, and in my book I try to explain why a symbol means something. I don't just say, for instance, I don't just go, IV stands for friendship. I tried to figure out why does IV stand for friendship, and the reason is because IV clings to things, just the way your friend will stick with you in tough times, good and bad. So it's a, a symbolic reason for that. It's not just random. And I think a lot of people are surprised by that. Like when they are learning about symbols, they think that they were just sort of randomly decided, but they aren't. It really, symbols really come from a more poetic way of looking at the world. I think that, and it really gave me an appreciation for the people from the past. I think a hundred years ago, uh, people were a little more in tune with symbolism. And perhaps they were better at interpreting their dreams for that reason. It seems like they might have had a greater appreciation for poetry, from what I can see. But I do think there was a broader understanding. I think we've become very literal. I mean, we have all sorts of symbols. We have emoticons now. We have emoji. Yeah, but they're very literal. You know, the the laughing emoji means laughter. But um, nowadays, let's say your grandma likes to feed the squirrels, so you put a squirrel on her headstone. In the past... uh, a, a squirrel, it might have, it stood for spiritual striving. And if it was holding an acorn, the acorn has a lot of significance because from the tiny acorn, great oak grows. So it stands for faith and, and sticking with your, con, your convictions. And I just like how a little symbol can kind of be like the old cliche, a picture's worth a thousand words. A symbol can convey so much more. Um, and I think our ancestors were a little more attuned to that than we are today. Please tell me you haven't seen a headstone that has an emoji on it. <laughs> I haven't, but I'm sure they are coming. I am sure they're coming. Yeah, I, I bet you're right. Um, you know, I find some of the artistry in in some of the hand-carved older uh, headstones quite fascinating. And the sad part about it is much of those um, carvings were done on, on pieces of slate or, you know, other lesser uh rocks and they don't endure and they they erode and we we've lost many of them and, and in some cases they're almost very you know barely uh distinguishable on the headstone um but there's some real artisans that used to do that work um you know years ago there really are yeah there is some real uh, i actually gave a talk at a monument builders um, association meeting once and it was really fun to talk to them for one thing monument people who make headstones, it tends to be a family business. So I would meet, you know, the son and the dad and the grandpa, and they'd be there, and it had been in their family for a long time. And so they were full of interesting stories. And I would show them some of the photos of headstones that I had taken around the world, and they really pointed out some of the craftsmanship that just doesn't exist anymore. So sometimes on a things that you just walk right by and might not pay it give that much attention to. For instance, if you see raised lettering on a headstone, that's really quite hard because they had to chip away everything around it to make those raised letters. That's extra. You paid extra for that. And I I used to just walk right by that and go, oh, raised letters on that one. It's like, oh, I have a much deeper appreciation. Um, Certainly there are some stones are just so soft that they do wear down. I was actually at a cemetery in San Juan, Puerto Rico, right by the ocean. And I showed the monument builders some of the monuments there, and they were just amazed because these it's basically an outdoor sculpture garden. These are amazingly well-carved. Like, there will be angels with wings, and you can see the feathers, like the individual, I don't know what you call, parts of the feather. Yeah, <laughs> you can right. tell it's a feather, and all really detailed. And yet, you would think that this statue should be kept inside in a, a temperature-controlled area. And there it is, out getting 
pummeled by the trade winds and salt water all day long. And they were saying that is really, really high-quality marble there. They were just astounded because a lot of times these uh, you'll go to a um, historic cemetery and it looks like things have melted because, you know, the weather. Don't forget to check out our social media. Give it a like and a follow. It's Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook, also J.V. Johnson on Facebook. And then if you want to catch the YouTube stream where the chat room is, it's a great way to watch and listen to the program if you don't have a radio station in your market carrying it yet. Go to uh, YouTube and just search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it. Not only will you be able to see the show live, but you'll also be able to see about 350 or so back interviews, episodes over the course of the last 18 months or so. Uh, A lot of great stuff there, plus some special content. Please subscribe and click the notification icon. That way you'll be notified anytime we stream live or put up new content. Very easy to do. Tonight we're talking with uh, Tui Snyder about her book called Understanding Cemetery Symbols. We'll also be talking about another book of hers called Paranormal Texas. Uh, I want to continue talking about cemeteries, though. Uh, Tui, is it true that garden cemeteries were actually America's first public parks? Yes, they were. And this was that was such a surprise to me. Um, and it, it kind of evolved because up through the 1700s, when people were buried in the city, they wanted to be buried in the church, like inside the church if possible, but in the churchyard itself. And, of course, there's only so much room in a churchyard, right. and it was kind of coveted, too, like which side of the church. It was just like a pecking order to the whole deal. And as, you know, these bodies would stack up, maybe there would be a flood or something, and the churchyard wall would weaken, and that would just send piles of bodies tumbling out onto the streets. And they realized, okay, this is not a good thing. Um, you know, even though they weren't quite up to snuff as far as, as far as hygiene and everything in those days, they knew this could not be healthy. Right. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people have heard about the famous uh, cemetery over in France, Père Lachaise, and it's like a big, you know, a huge rambling garden cemetery. Well, that was the world's first garden cemetery. And it inspired people in America to do the same thing. They thought, you know, this is a good idea, because what the French had done was they had said, all right, it's no longer legal to bury people inside city limits. Let's bury them out in the countryside. And why don't we make it into kind of a sculpture garden along the way? And so, you know, we talked about how beautiful some of these cemetery monuments can be. They really are like a sculpture garden. And so um, the garden cemeteries became the place to go on the weekend. Uh, you might, there was one uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and that was the very first one, and it just sparked a whole thing across the United States to, like, make these garden cemeteries. And so people would go. There'd be hunters out shooting game. There might be an artist with his easel set up. People would put on their, their best clothes to be seen, be seen. And that's the thing to do. There'd be public festivals. There'd even be carriage races. That was common in America. That was what people did. And now we have public parks. They don't necessarily have dead people in them. But at the very beginning, they did. You uh, you mentioned Paris. I find Paris a, a very a fascinating place for a lot of reasons. But when it comes to cemeteries, I don't know when it was, uh, um, but I know that at some point they'd actually exhumed all the bodies from all the yeah. cemeteries, and they stacked the uh, bones, which were what the remnants of all those uh, graves mm-hmm. were, in, in the uh, French catacombs under Paris. Um, yes. I've, I've been to those catacombs, such an eerie... Oh, cool eerie place um but there are like i think something in the neighborhood of seven million um sets of of uh, skeletal remains in those catacombs all stacked up Uh, it's it's a really bizarre sight but that was part of the uh relocation of all the bodies from all the cemeteries within the uh, paris city limits yeah and that was kind of their solution to well we got all these dead bodies and yeah, yeah it's it's really something it's there, kind of macabre kind of fascinating at the same time it is it's both of those things let's jump to our <laughs> listener line this is mark in hawthorne new jersey hey mark welcome to the program hey jv uh, thanks for taking my call um i have a question for tui what do you think about reincarnation is this a, a real phenomena and you know what are we visiting when we go to the graves if, if the souls really just moved on 
That's a great you question. Know, so what you're saying, uh, Mark, just to clarify this, uh, what you're saying is if there is reincarnation, uh, when we actually go visit somebody's gravesite, what are we actually doing there? What are we visiting? Who are we paying homage to if the soul has moved on to another uh, being? Yeah, that's fascinating. I, My thoughts on reincarnation have changed over the years because, quite frankly, you can ask the smartest person, you know, Stephen Hawking, well, you can't ask him anything now, but you know what I mean. You can ask the smartest people in the world, and they cannot truly define what time is. We know that we, just for whatever reason, we experience it in a particular direction going forward. That's how we experience time. And yet... Uh, there is some evidence there are, you know, if you, like, there are people, quantum theory, <laughs> quantum mechanics, things like that. They, scientists will say that there is, it's highly likely that everything is happening at once. This is one, one such idea. So when I think of reincarnation or a past life, if all of time is happening at once, then my past life is happening now. Let's say I'm a, a flapper in the 20s. I think that would be fun. It's not really in the past. That past is happening now in an alternate reality as well. Now, as for when I go to a cemetery and I'm, I'm visiting some historic character or, or someone, you know, who's a, a friend who has passed away, I still think there is something to our essence that can be on time and that by going there and focusing on them, their monument helps me to focus upon it and... So, yeah, I think they they still exist in that regard. Their energy still exists, but I don't know if I'm making sense here. But I, I do have a different idea of time now. Like, I, I think that it's all happening at once. And, I think there are future lives just as well. Yeah, and Mark, Mark, that's a great point. Um, But I also think that, as uh, Tui said earlier, cemeteries are for the living. And when I know when I go visit uh, the graves of my parents, um, I'm doing it for my memory of them more so than yeah. thinking that they have a presence there other than what the, you know, obviously that their, their remains are there to be blunt. Um, but it's really more for me to, to respect them than it is for me to think I'm making some special contact with them because I feel like that contact happens every day, all day, regardless of where I am. Oh, that's so perfectly expressed. <laughs> Thank you. That was great. Thanks for the call, Mark. We appreciate you calling from, uh, from New Jersey. Um, let, you know, there are some traditions and some practices, I guess is a better way to put it, that have come and gone in the, in the process of respecting and remembering loved ones that have passed on. One of the things I wrote an article about at one point was uh, post-mortem photography, which was very, oh, yeah. very popular around the turn of the century. Um, but there's, there are other ones as well. Um, like, uh, what are some of the practices that you've discovered or maybe studied or researched a little bit uh, as you were writing some of your material? Well, I I thought it was cool to read. I read a lot of accounts of people having Decoration Day, which later turned into Memorial Day. Right. And this would be a time when, and there's still some, quite a few uh, cemeteries here in Texas. Like, I was at one once where they do this. So what this means is that the ancestors will all gather on like the third Saturday in April. It's usually in springtime because they want flowers to be blooming. And so they can decorate the graves of those. So they, people will get together. And if there's a church nearby, they'll take the pews out and, you know, the benches out and sit on them. They'll have picnics, they'll have singing and the kids will play and they'll, each family will tend to their cemetery plot. And what, they aren't quite as elaborate now, the, the ones that I've heard about, but I've read some really accounts that sound like a, it was such a fun time. Now, one of the things they used to do during this um, decoration day that I found so unusual um, is called scraping the graves. Had you heard of that? No, not at all. What is this? Yeah, it's so weird. So scraped graves, and this is more of a Southern tradition and it does appear that it was, it's actually, you can trace it back to the Ivory Coast. So apparently slave owners saw that the slaves were doing this in their cemeteries and thought it was a good idea. And what it means is that um, nowadays, when you think of a cemetery, you generally think it's going to be as green as a golf course. You know, there's going to be really well-tended lawns. But there really weren't lawn grasses developed until the 20s and 30s. The idea of lawns is actually a fairly modern idea. So in the past, it would be just whatever would happen to be growing there. 
So on these days, on these decoration days in the South, they would go to their plot. Each family would go to their family plot, and they would scrape the grave, which means they would weed every last bit of whatever is growing there, except for maybe if they had grown iris or they had roses there, you know, whatever. I think you would put a plant there on the grave. That's one thing. But you didn't want any grass. And you would kind of make a mounded grave. And the purpose for this would be pretty practical. Like here in Texas, uh, you weren't going to, you'd be able to see snakes <laughs> more easily. Um, it kept livestock from wandering. If they got out, wandering through and pro- potentially knocking over headstones. But I tried to find, and up until the 80s, there were still quite a few uh, scraped graveyards throughout the South and throughout Texas. But the tradition really died off after the Depression because people had to travel far away for work, and so they couldn't come back. You know, families scattered. And so they couldn't, that tradition of coming back and scraping the graves of your ancestors changed. Perpetual care came in, you know, perpetual care societies for a cemetery, and they made it easier, lawn grasses came about. So it became easier to just plant grass and like mow over everything. But in the past, people would scrape them. And when I gave that talk at that monument builders, they helped me find one of the few and maybe the only remaining scraped graveyard in Texas. It's the only one I was able to find. And I do have a picture of it in my book. Um, it's it's kind of cool looking. It's like these mounded graves and it, it is, it's, everything's just scraped. It looks like clay. But I wanted to ask you about the difference between coffin and a casket. Is there a difference between those two things? And tell us, if there is, what the difference is. Yeah, there is a difference. So uh, when you think of a coffin, think of Dracula. You know, it's the classic shape that kind of narrow at the top, wide at the shoulders, narrow at the feet. That's the coffin. But during the Victorian era, they wanted to kind of soften the idea of death and so they came up with the idea of a casket. And casket originally referred to a little jewelry box. It didn't really refer to something you would put a dead body in. And so this is quite controversial because the caskets were meant to look like beds. And they were meant to, the Victorians were really big on comparing death to eternal sleep. And this was quite actually controversial um, People complained about it. They were like, you know, it should be caskets. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, the guy who wrote, you know, The Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. he even was really against it. He said that caskets were just, um, what would he say? He said anyone with good sense and taste should, you know, shrink away from the use of a, of a, of a casket. It was a euphemism that they didn't like. So is that why today we expect a uh, casket to have a pillow and almost a mattress-looking uh, uh, set up inside? I mean, is that where that came from? That is where they came from. And the fact there are, yes, it's meant to look like a comfy bed. You're meant to think the person is simply asleep in Jesus, sleeping, you know, different things like that. Even the word cemetery was not in use until the Victorian era. And it comes from a Greek word, koimetrium, which means sleeping place. Before that, you would have said churchyard, burial ground, graveyard. Mm. You would not have said cemetery. Interesting. We've got about a minute here before we have to jump to our next break. Um, we've been talking about these books. We've been talking about your website. Uh, I'm assuming that going through your website is uh, is a place, is the best place maybe to be able to get a hold of your books? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I think there's a link that just says about my books or something. <laughs> if you go to TuiSnyder.com, it'll say that. You click on that, and it instantly takes you to my Amazon page, which will have all my books. And there's quite a, quite a few books to pick from there, and more on the way, I've got to say. <laughs> so. And what else can people find on your website? Well, they can find my newsletter. I have a weekly newsletter where I, I tell them about different events that are going on. Like I'm going to be at a, a paranormal investigation in a circus town this week, and I'll be giving a talk about understanding cemetery symbols. I have a link to my YouTube page, and I have over 700 articles about all sorts of topics, like the 1897 airship mystery. I have um, a lot, just lots of you can use a little search bar and just type in, if you're interested in cemetery symbols, just type cemetery symbols, and you'll get some interesting, um, you get a lot of interesting articles. I, I do share quite a bit there. Um, yeah, so that's what they can find there. They can dig around, and they can contact me. We've been talking about these two books primarily, but how many books uh, have you written that are available? Well, um, I have about, I have 
according to Amazon, I have 14 available. <laughs> <laughs> two of them, two of them are workbooks. Uh, so I, I tend to think that I have about 10 or about a dozen, but I've got several more coming out. I've, I've got one just about really quirky burials coming out next year, um, called six feet under Texas. And it's about the more unusual burials, like a guy who actually had a phone line installed for three days, um, (laughs) (laughs) in his mausoleum because he was so worried he would drink pretty heavily. And he thought that people might just tuck him away when he was hungover well, they, and they used, pass out. They used to put a, a bell uh, uh, up uh, on the top of the surface and then a string yeah. down into the casket so those people could ring it in case they were mistakenly buried. <laughs> Our guest tonight, Tui Snyder, we're talking about her book, Understanding Cemetery Symbols, but I think it's time to change the topic because we're going to run out of time here. And Tui, um, along the way, you said you used to write fiction but then you moved to Texas. <laughs> Tell us what that statement means, because obviously uh, it kind of is a nice lead into your book, Paranormal Texas. Yes. And, uh, well, it, it means exactly that. I did used to write sci-fi and, and fiction, but I moved to Texas 10 years ago, and I came across so many bizarre tales, like, you know, the tale uh, I found out that I lived 15 minutes away from where the body of an alleged space alien was buried in 1897, for instance. I'm like, what? You know, that's crazy. Forget the fiction pro. I mean, <laughs> the fiction project. I am going to research this and see what this is all about. So, yes, that is <laughs> a good, good yeah, reason. So, uh, that, um, it's, it's kind of a, a case of the, the truth is stranger than fiction, so to speak. It really, really <laughs> is. There are so many weird things around here. Uh, you know, I wrote one of the books um, I've got is about um, the lynching of the Santa Claus bank robber, because there was a guy who robbed banks in the 20s, and he dressed like Santa at one point. And, you know, it was just that like, when I heard that they lynched Santa, I was like, what? <laughs> only, only in Texas. <laughs> so the book is called Paranormal Texas. Uh, tell us how you uh, found the stories that you included in the book and uh, how you did your research for it. Yeah, so Paranormal Texas is, I, like, while I do hope that it provides some good armchair travel for people, uh, people who might never come to Texas, it actually is a travel guide to haunted places. So the places in the book, uh, at the end of each little segment where I give you the background and tell you what people have experienced there, I then tell you how you could go visit that. So I kind of have it, I think I have it pretty much by town. So, you know, I, I have like Fort Worth, and I have a bunch of places that you could visit there. And then I have even smaller towns, too. But the purpose of it is that you, you don't have to just read about these places. You can then go visit them yourself. So with that in mind, there were places that I, I didn't include, uh, like, you know, I heard about a haunted daycare center. I didn't think it'd be so nice for people just randomly showing up with their ghost box or whatever. Right. <laughs> during nap time or something. And, and there are a lot of haunted nursing homes, i got to say. And I, I've heard some great tales, but I didn't include those either. I didn't think that would be very polite. Um, there's some businesses where the business owners didn't want to come forward. Luckily, there was one B&B that at the last minute, she finally came out of the paranormal closet and went public with the things she'd been experiencing at her B&B. And now the problem she has is that when people come and visit, she thought that people wouldn't come and stay if they knew it was haunted. Now people complain if, you know, hey, we slept through the night and we didn't hear anything. We didn't see anything paranormal. So she kind of has the opposite problem. Par- um, paranormal oh. tourism has, um, you know, since the introduction of the ghost hunting shows on television, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of those places, uh, particularly if they're places that are um, uh, have accommodations, uh, have kind of been pulled out of some financial troubles because of paranormal tourism. Definitely they have. I, I have seen it help some places for sure. Uh, and, you know, if people are respectful about it, I think that's great. Um, and you did ask how I, I researched it. I've got to say I did. The first thing I did was I contacted a bunch of, um, you know, I had a gathering of places that I'd heard were were haunted. But I did contact a lot of people who said they were paranormal investigators and said they had a paranormal investigation team. And that's when I learned the hard way that, gosh, anybody can say they are a paranormal investigator. (laughs) And anybody can say they've got a team. And they are not all created equally. And I did have a couple, oof, less than stellar 
really creepy experiences. In one case, I was actually abandoned. My friend and I were just abandoned in this really creepy haunted place. It was pretty active, but there was also a lot of, it was a really sketchy neighborhood. And I suddenly get a text. I thought, oh, finally, it's quiet because they were not organized at all. I thought maybe we're going to have the investigation now. And I get a text. Oh, hey, we all split. You know, Brian got scared and Judy did. I'm making, I'm making up the names. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so wow. I, I definitely um, learned that you really have to be careful and kind of vet these paranormal teams before you decide to go spend the night in a creepy place and wander around in the dark with them. And I, I say that as a cautionary tale to everyone else. Don't make the mistakes I did at the beginning. Now I have a few teams that I really like, so I stick with them. So the book Paranormal Texas, that is a collection of haunted locations that can be visited uh, when you're in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area? Yes, it is. And I, I should say that I also do historic research on these places. So, And these are all places in North Texas, all places you can get to on the weekend if you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, because Texas is big. So when I was first uh, writing this book, my husband still had a full-time job, so we could only go explore on his days off. And so I did kind of make it, you know, tried to make everything I included in the book within a, a weekend drive so you could plan your fun outing for the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, that was kind of how I did that. So uh, what are urban legends, and do you have any of those in the book, or is that something completely different? I tend to think of those as something different, and that's why I do a lot of historic research. So if there, you know, there's some haunted bridge somewhere, and they say Joe Blow lived there and did this, I go into the newspaper archives, the libraries, and I try to find out if there really was someone named Joe Blow there and what what people are actually experiencing. Because people do tend to just make things up. And, you know, it's human nature. We love a good story, and... They do this with the cemetery symbols, too. When people don't have all the facts, they just start to make rumors, and it grows from there. Like one example I have in my book is Smiley's Grave, and I actually have a, a video about this as well, if anyone wants to check it out on my YouTube channel again, since I know we're on YouTube. Um, so Smiley's Grave is what it is. But everyone in North Texas has heard about it, if you're into the paranormal, and the and it's even in some books. I've read in some books where they said the story of Smiley's grave, here's why it's tragic. You know, his name is Smiley, but it's a mass grave. You can look at the headstone, and there's like five people buried there. Well, he was, there's all these different reasons about how Mr. Smiley killed his whole family. Long story short, I did a little bit of newspaper research, and it's nice because they have the death date right there on the headstone. And they were actually, the family was tragically killed by a, a nighttime tornado, a tornado at 3 in the morning back in 1929, which to me is just terrifying to think about. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they don't have Doppler radar. You know, we've got, I've got all sorts of alerts on my phone now. But nighttime tornadoes, they're not as common, and, boy, they can be deadly. And this was at one case. So I felt good to kind of clear Mr. Smiley's name. That area certainly seems to be haunted, but, you know, don't go saying that he's an axe murderer. So it was originally, and, and, the, and the urban legend was that he was an axe murderer, killed his family, and turned out to be just, yeah. real, just a real tragic uh, event, uh, weather event, basically. Yes, exactly. Wow. And that's the thing with these urban legends. I really tried to kind of pin down, like, when did that start? I don't know who started it or how these things start exactly, but it seems like when people don't have all the facts and they are, don't have access to research, they just kind of embroider the situation and... It isn't always true. Do you think cemeteries are uh, more or less haunted than any other particular location? What are your, what's your opinion on that? Uh, yeah, I used to be very resistant to the idea that cemeteries would be haunted at all. I don't know why. I just thought, you know, isn't that the last place, uh -huh, you know, pun well, intended, that someone would be hanging yeah. out? But I think there is something to be said for... As common denominator, when I think of places that report paranormal activity, they're places where we shut up. You know, they're, they're, they're bookstores, they're libraries, they're cemeteries. Well, a commonality with all those places are you, you are kind of quiet when you're there. And as a species, we tend to be pretty noisy, and our phones are booping and beeping, and we're not really paying a lot of attention. I think, too, when you're at a cemetery, you're a little more, you know, your frame of mind, I think, makes you more receptive. So if there is a spirit that's been trying to get your attention, they might give it a whirl when you're at a cemetery. They might be able to get through. I mean, there might be 
bars and stuff that are really haunted, but they're so noisy and rowdy that, you know, they can't get anybody's attention. So that's kind of where, and also I had to really eat some crow because I, I had an experience in a, a cemetery. Um, and I was just there doing cemetery research and it was nine thirty in the morning and I wasn't expecting anything paranormal to happen. So cemetery. I don't know how much time we have. I could tell you about it if you want. <laughs> yeah, actually do tell us. We've, we've got some time. Go ahead. Okay. We've got a little time. So this is over in Mineral Wells, which is a really cool town. And since you haven't had any experiences, I would tell you that Mineral Wells is off the charts. I think you would have an experience if you came to that town. There's a lot of haunted places there for you. Maybe you'd get to have your experience finally. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> maybe. So I was at Elmwood Cemetery. It's about 930 in the morning. Beautiful day. I'm running around trying to get some nice shots. My friend is with me, and she says, hey, go read the epitaph over there. You'll get a kick out of it. And so I, I trot over to this monument, and it's, um, I see that it's a, a German guy, and underneath his, his epitaph says, the orphan's true friend. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really unusual. There's definitely a story behind this. I'm going to have to, I haven't had much luck, but I really want to find out about his life. So I kind of hunker down, I'm framing the picture, and as I'm down, I suddenly hear children giggling, like, you know, like tittering children. And I think, oh, there's some kids nearby. I stand up and I look over and it was pretty loud. It was I could tell exactly where it had come from and there's nothing there. And I look all this cemetery is not near any any sort of place where there were kids. I ran all around looking to see if there were any people nearby. I didn't find anything. But it was one of those moments where I felt like I was being watched and I did all the hair was standing up on my arms. It was really something. So I was like, okay, maybe Maybe cemeteries are haunted. The um, you know when you think of somebody um, returning as a spirit, it seems as though they'd want to be someplace that gave them pleasant memories, or maybe around their families, or um, you know maybe a place where they remember uh, things as from their childhood. It seems very odd to me that they would have, if they have a choice, that is, uh, mm-hmm. have any any desire to hang around where their body might be resting. That seems a little strange to me, but you can't deny um, that a lot of people have had experiences in, in cemeteries. Uh, yeah, no, that's it. And I think that's why I had that same resistance. I'm like, why don't they hang out somewhere else? But you just reminded me of my favorite type of ghost. And my favorite type of ghost is the the deceased business owner who loved their business so much that they, they can't keep from meddling from beyond the grave. Like, you know, I've got one about a hat shop where there's um, people think that the the man who died, even during his funeral, doors started to slam. They thought that his he made his presence known. And there's uh, a few places throughout the book. And I realized as I was putting the book together that these are my favorite kind of spirits. You know, there's sort of you, you run across the jilted bride or the, the murder or different kinds of things that happen. And I, I like it when there's like someone who just loved their, their restaurant so much that they just keep coming back or their theater so much that they keep coming back. What's next on your agenda? I, I know you're always writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm always writing. I do. I, I recently spoke at the International UFO Congress about the 1897 airship sightings. So I've done seven years of newspaper research about this rash of sightings here in North Texas and around uh, during a six-week period. And it's just such a strange, it was once again, one of those, you know, I used to write fiction, but then I moved to Texas because I thought it was ridiculous at first. And yet here I am seven years later, and I'm still <laughs> picking up interesting things about it. So I've, I've got so much gathered um, that it's, it's turning into a book, whether I want it to or not. So that's one for sure. Um, and then I think I mentioned, too, the Six Feet Under Texas, the book I want to do about unusual burials throughout Texas, like the guy with the phone line and this other gal, Sandra West, who was kind of the Paris Hilton of her day. And she was buried in her Ferrari with the seat comfortably <laughs> tilted back wearing a nightie. I mean, things like that. We have just a couple minutes here, but um, you've mentioned the 1897 incident a few times. And uh, I know what it is. You know what it is. But just tell our, our audience what you're talking about there. Yeah, so in 1897, and we're talking six years before the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk, um, when the only thing you should have been seeing fly through the sky would have been maybe a vulture, the biggest thing, there was this rash of airship sightings in Texas during a six-week period. And uh, 
people did not know what to make of it. Uh, when I paw through the newspapers, there's all sorts of conjecture, and it's really quite interesting to see how they tried to make sense of this. I still, the jury's out for me what was going on exactly, but there were a lot of theories. And so, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It, it was really something very uh, unusual. Okay, so we're out of time, Tui. Thank you for being here. Once again, let people know where they can get a hold of your books. Okay, if you just go to Amazon.com and type my name, Tui Snyder, don't use any Y's, <laughs> that ought to bring it up. Or you can just go to my website and start digging around there, um, and you can find my books there. And I, this was fun. I really enjoyed chatting with everybody today. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. TuiSnyder.com, you'll get a whole bunch of information there about her work, her appearances, her articles, her newsletter, those kinds of things are all right there. Don't forget, tomorrow night, Alex Bose will be with us. Alex is the author of Psychedelic Apes. Alex is also curator of MuseumofHoaxes.com and will present bizarre but plausible alternative theories. That's tomorrow night's program. Looking ahead, Ming Chi will be here Monday night. Dr. Ming-Chi is the author of a new book called Angels of Rainbow Bridge, Life After Transition, which is a book written to help ease the pain of losing a pet. And then Tuesday night of next week, Frank J. Bennett, author and Bible teacher, will be here to discuss his book, Encounter with the Aberdeen Wild Man, and his biblical perspective on the paranormal. So a lot of great stuff coming up on the program. Please visit YouTube and find the channel, J.V. Johnson. Just search for that. And uh, subscribe and also go to Facebook and like us there, Beyond Reality Radio and also J.V. Johnson. And if you have not um, found the podcast, you should uh, you should look for it and subscribe to the podcast. It's a great way to catch the show if you're commuting uh, the next day or um, you can even find an archive of programs through the through the podcast archive. It's uh, available for both Apple Podcasts and Google Play, all the regular places you'll find podcasts. You can find Beyond Reality Radio there as well. And a final thing I'll mention is if if you uh, are interested in paranormal and or horror films, you need to go to Scaracon.com and look at the website of the upcoming event, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. This is going to be a fantastic weekend of celebrities, parties, panel discussions, unique vendors, socializing, um, a lot of great stuff, including a whole film festival. About 50 never-before-seen films will be premiering at the Scaracon Film Festival. A great weekend. Go to Scaracon.com. You'll get all the information you need. That's going to do it for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.